big shout out goes to Maxis Tires, Jensen USA, and Fox Shocks for supporting the Inside Line. Welcome, mountain bikers. Thanks for tuning in to Vital MTB's The Inside Line podcast. Got Vital Tech Editor Jason Schroeder in the co-pilot seat today. We're stoked to have Christopher Aruda, brand manager for Noble Wheels on the show. Chris, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, for having me, Sean and Jason. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, digging into the nitty gritty about carbon wheels and the journey of Noble and all that. You know, we'll talk about the history of Noble and how everything came about, but I kind of want to jump into it right now into a hot topic, just carbon mountain bike rims versus aluminum. What do you think are the benefits of carbon over aluminum? And this is how Jason coined it. And I think it's a great way to say it. What would you tell a carbon fearing rider to sway them towards giving carbon wheels a try? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And honestly, one that, you know, we kind of see and, and, and talk about all the time with our customers. I think, you know, initially when carbon rims, uh, you know, came out and kind of seen people tended to go toward carbon for the weight savings, right? I mean, that that's what you kind of commonly hear even today. Oh, I'm going to save some weight. You know, someone might be a, a weight focused rider. Maybe they're riding XC, maybe they're riding light trail and they, they, they really want to shave some, shave some weight from the bike for the climbs or whatever. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of the original reason people came toward carbon. Um, however, I think over time, what's what's tended to happen is people have started to recognize the fantastic ride quality that carbon wheels provide for riders. Um, obviously, you know, w- with carbon, the material can flex quite a bit more. And what that means, especially when you have a product like the Noble product, it basically means that your rim can can flex a lot more up and down through chunky stuff. Um, and when you're kind of holding a straight line in, in really technical terrain. So that leads to a lot more comfort on the handlebars. Uh, but almost more importantly, side to side, there's still a lot of stiffness. And the carbon is far more stiff um, than alloy. So when you're pushing through a corner... Um, or, or trying to move the bike around and be nimble. There's just some additional precision versus uh, versus you know a traditional alloy rim. So I think alloy rims work really really well for a huge amount of riders. Um, but I think people that uh, people that go to carbon tend to you know the way I like to talk about it with people is it, it, unless you're the kind of rider that you know forgets that their shock is locked out on the whole ride, you're going to notice a difference in ride quality. Uh, and I think that that. For, for us, at least, that, that difference is, is considerable. Sweet. I like it. Maybe you just won some people over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the interesting thing about that is as, as bikes have become more aggressive and use cases have become more aggressive kind of across the board, you know, most enduro or gravity-focused carbon rims probably weigh pretty close to what a, a comparable alloy rim would weigh these days so the weight unfortunately uh while it still you know can be considerable depending on what type of rim you go with it's really to me all about the ride quality and you know our manufacturing not just ours but you know rim manufacturing as a whole has come so far over the last five six years carbon rims used to be just these crazy deep overly stiff uh things that maybe weren't pleasant to ride, but because we can make those sidewalls more shallow now, and because we can make the, the layups more sophisticated, we're able to get that that really nice sense of elasticity in, in the wheel, which which feels pleasant to ride. 
Nice. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more to unpack there, which, you know, we'll, we'll do as we go on. Um, but let's talk about Noble's journey kind of starting from the beginning. And I mean, why would anyone want to start a carbon mountain bike wheel company? Like you've been around 2012 is when you guys started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 2012 is when the business was started and it was started in, in, in the Fraser Valley. Um, I was, I was hoping Trevor was, uh, would be able to join us. He's one of the co-founders, uh, and the CEO, but, uh, he's, he's typically more of a behind the scenes kind of guy and just kind of, um, enjoys putting things together and watching them develop. Uh, so he wasn't able to be here today, but, uh, I think his, his main motivation when he started the company was he noticed there was a lot of carbon grid manufacturers, um, that were out there, you know, peddling products that I don't think met his needs. And he wanted to, to try experimenting with some of his own ideas and designs specifically at that time. I think he wanted to go, you know, at that time, the, uh, common mountain rims were very, very narrow at 2012, 2013. And he noticed that there was a kind of a, a trend beginning where people wanted to experiment with wider tire sizes. And that's something he really embraced with the, uh, with, with kind of the first, uh, rib that he designed, which is the 27.5 inch TR 38. Um, so it was a super burly rim. Uh, it was, it still remains one of our deepest rims, very, very stiff, uh, hookless, obviously. Um, but at the time it was, uh, you know, the fact that it was hookless and the fact that it was so deep, was very different uh, to what was available on the market. I think that actually was released in 2014 by the time that actually that actually came out and was available to the public. What were the first rims that came out then? Was was the business around for two years? Did it take two years to develop that that first one? Yeah. So it, it's funny. I think when he originally started the business, he wasn't actually producing rims to, to begin with. He was actually building wheel sets by hand. That's how okay. the whole thing started. He was building wheels by hand for customers that were located in the Fraser Valley and beyond, which is just in the lower mainland of BC. And at that, over the over time, I think is what he recognized. He wanted to try something for himself, and so designed the first rim, which was the TR38, which I mentioned. And I think by later 2014, he actually designed a second rim, uh, which is 29 inch only at the time, which is a TR36. So versus the 38, the 36 was the more trail. Uh, you know, XC light trail model. Um, and I think he also designed the TR28, which we no longer sell. Um, so it seems like the, the first rims were kind of developed in early 2014. And then by, by the tail end of that year, we had a couple rims on the market. Okay. And then, I mean, from wheel building to carbon rim manufacturing, how, how did that happen? Was there some background in, I mean, I noticed on your side, it's, there's background in composites with um, some of the people that are there, but do you know how that how that came about? Yeah, for sure. So he he had done some some work in the, the aerospace uh, field, and also he's he's just a he's just a pretty special kind of guy. He just <laughs> I guess he know, he knows a lot about a lot, and he likes to tinker. And so for him, I think it was actually a relatively natural thing. I think we all know those people that are super you know mechanically apt that you know they just like look at an engine and they can tell you exactly kind of how it's running. Uh, and so for him, I think it was, um, it, it was, it was, it was kind of the same thing where he's kind of looking at these rims that he's building up for other customers and looking at how they're constructed and, and maybe doing a little bit of thinking. Um, and then, you know, the, the next obvious step from there is to, it's, it's to design something on its own. Hmm. Cool. How long have you been there? Yeah. So I started with the company in, in 2020, the, the business ran in the Fraser Valley, uh, until I believe it was August of 2020 at that time. 
Um, I mean, the Fraser Valley is beautiful. I'm not sure if you guys have any spent, spent any time up there, but uh, it's it's a beautiful place to be. There's there's fantastic cycling there. Um, but Trevor always wanted to have the business in a real cycling centric community. So um, he looked at a couple of different places on Vancouver Island. Uh, he thought about the, the Cowichan Valley, which is beautiful and obviously home to to Mount Prevost, which is which is quite uh, famous for uh, obviously it's it's downhill uh, downhill tracks uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the racers train there in the off season yeah uh, but the other area he identified was was the comox valley and, and that's kind of where he ended up so uh, in august 2020 uh he started to move the business over to the comox valley he popped uh he popped an ad up on uh craigslist uh, if anyone remembers <laughs> craigslist used to be the kind of the job market thing and uh I, I responded to the ad so i've been working here since august of 2020 so just just over three years now okay nice. cool and since then you're now on Vancouver Island, right? Yeah. So we moved the rest of the business. We, we moved some of the staff over with us. I um, mean, one of the key staff members left at that time uh, at the Fraser Valley. So uh, we made the decision to move everything over. Trevor and I went over to the, uh, to the Valley on the farm where the, uh, the business was located and uh, packed everything into a U-Haul van, did a couple trips and, and moved everything over to Courtney. So as of October of 2020, we've been on the Island full time. So pretty much three full years as of just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a dream place to work and ride bikes. Because, <laughs> I mean, everyone that everyone goes to the island who's never been there says it's one of the coolest places they've ever been. Yeah, I think what makes it so special is, I mean, you know, obviously uh, the Pacific Northwest is is a beautiful place to be. It's it's a rainforest, so it's, it's definitely wet. But what makes the island so special, and specifically the Comox Valley, is we have just such amazing varied riding uh, all around us. So. The Cumberland network itself is one of the most uh, ridden networks in North America. It's just miles and miles of world-class single track. Everything from uh, relatively accessible, you know, green and blue flow trails to some really great XC stuff to some um, some very steep, janky, technical kind of, you know, P&W um, double black uh, trails that, 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 you know, pretty much any rider would be challenged by. But then not only do we have Cumberland, we also have, you know, within about an hour from here, you know, we have three or four other networks, some relatively well known, some less known um, that really provide a crazy amount to varied riding. Uh, Cumberland is, is uh, you know, a little bit rocky. The grade um, is, is not quite as consistent than other places. So you have to climb quite a bit uh, at times. Uh, but then just close by, we have Forbidden Plateau, which is a lot rockier, um, a lot a, a lot more consequential and uh, something more aggressive riders would uh, would enjoy. And then there's there's even even just outside of those areas, there's there's more varied riding. So it's just nice to have everything close by. And we're very lucky to be here and do business here for sure. Is the population like there, there are very many people there? And I just I'm asking just because of finding, you know, a deep enough employee pool. Like, is that something that is easy to do? It's, you know, I'll say it's been a challenge. Um, you know, the valley is growing a lot. You know, I think in the greater valley, we probably have something like 70 to 80,000 people. I'd have to actually double check that, but it could be as many as 100,000, but that's relatively spread out. Vancouver Island, uh, for those that don't know, is located just west of, of Vancouver and very close to Seattle. Um, but, you know, when people hear the word island, they often think, oh, yeah, like this is just this, <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, a little community, but Vancouver Island itself is, is absolutely massive. Um, you know, there's four or five cities on the island. I would probably take you, you know, eight or nine hours to drive end to end. So it's just a massive place and it's mostly unpopulated. 
which makes recreating outdoors absolutely fantastic. But the flip side of that is, as you indicated, it, it has been, I think we've been very fortunate with our staff. We have some fantastic people working for us. But unlike the Sea to Sky Corridor, where you kind of have this influx of, um, you know, people from other countries coming there to ride the park and to ride Squamish, they just want to get their foot in the door. They'll kind of take any industry job because they love bikes. We don't quite have that yet. So what that means is it has been, in, in some sense, a little bit more difficult for us to find entry-level um, employees. Um, but uh, I think on the whole, we've done a really excellent job of attracting some some, some fantastic employees and uh, we all really enjoy working together as a team. Cool. How many, how many are working there right now? Yeah. So currently we're sitting at about 15 employees. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's COVID was a, COVID was certainly a, a wild ride for us in, in regards to staffing as I'm sure it was for, for many other um, businesses in the cycling industry. To give you a bit of context with when I joined the company, um, which was uh, August of 2020, there was five or six employees. And uh, it was relatively small, and um, but close-knit. And then over the next two years, uh, we, we just kind of saw explosive growth. And that's, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's not really the type of growth you like to see as a small business. You kind of want small, slow, incremental growth that you can plan around, you know, like, oh, you know, we'll... Uh, Oh, we can we can hire another employee now. Fantastic! Like let's plan that. You know, it was more like okay, we have you know we have to build like three hundred wheel sets. <laughs> we have two people that were training how to build wheels, so um, we had to hire a crazy amount of people and solve a lot of problems in a really short period of time. Um, and I'm really proud of the work that we did to kind of keep things rolling at that at, 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 over those months. Um, so we grew from like five people until at one point, I think we had 23 employees. Um, yeah, which was, which is really exciting. Um, and then naturally, you know, as I think we, we in our businesses have kind of seen sales soften for the first time uh, since COVID started just, just this last fall. And so we have had some employees leave through attrition and, and unfortunately we had to let a couple people go. Um, so we're now sitting at around, uh, at around 15 people. Okay. Can you kind of walk us through the process there? I think eventually like Jason has some questions about, um, design and manufacturing overseas and stuff, but when, how does it work on Vancouver Island right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think what kind of separates us from other, um, you know, carbon wheel companies that, that consumers would, would think about is that everything we build here in Cumberland is, is built by hand to order. So we do have some, some dealers and we do have a distribution program for sure, but the business traditionally has been direct to customer um, since its inception primarily. So what that basically means is if you order a wheel from us, um, you know, we don't have wheel set A, wheel set B that we just kind of pick off the shelf and stick in a box and, and, and ship it. Uh, if one of you was to order a wheel set from us, we would uh, ask you, hey, what, what kind of bike are you riding? Um, how do you want the ride to feel? What kind of you know, what size tires do you have? Um, and then based on that feedback, we'd make a series of recommendations uh, from our catalog. Um, and then once you decide on what you'd like, uh, someone in Cumberland gets the order, they process it. That becomes a build sheet. That sheet is... Uh, we walk around the warehouse, we pick the custom colored hubs that you want. They go in the box. We pick the spoke types you want. Are they silver? Are they black? Those go in the box. 
what color nipples do you want that goes in the box and then that order is basically built by hand to spec for you uh we apply custom decals if that's what you want and then we're basically that the the, the order is put in a box and, and shipped internationally from there so in terms of what we do in cumberland our entire team is it's based here um our entire manufacturing team for the wheels is, is, is based here i guess um so um that's our customer service team we do our marketing out of here um and then all of our warehouse production team that's actually building these wheels each day is, is based here as well. Wow. Okay. Can you give us a breakdown of like, you have a lot of different hub um, options, spoke options. Is there a most popular hub and a most popular rim? Like, is that something you can talk about? I'm just personally curious what, what people are looking for. Yeah, for sure. So by far, I would say, you know, in terms of hub, um, the, the nice thing about what we do is everything we carry is premium. So, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the quote unquote lowest end hub that we would carry is a DT350, which which I consider to be a super reliable and excellent value hub. Um, I think probably, you know, we probably sell the most Industry 9 Hydras, I would say. If I, you know, without actually looking at our sales data, I, I think that Hydras would probably be among the most popular. Um, but all that being said, we do offer some options that um, a lot of companies don't have, like, you know, stuff like the Onyx uh, racing products. We've been we've been partners with them for years. And if you're looking for like a whisper silent hub, there's just not other options. So um, we sell a lot of those people that are looking for them tend to come to Noble because they might not be able to find other places. Um, and in particular, they might be able to find a black pair, but they might not be able to find like a I think they have one called like called nuclear green or something like that so um uh we definitely sell i i would say we sell our product through fairly evenly but hydras would probably be on top of the list of hubs that we sell as far as the most popular is concerned um and then in terms of rim there's not really a competition there our, our, our tr37 is by far our most popular product um you know i think that rim is kind of placed firmly in the all mountain um, you know, aggressive trail, all mountain enduro category. Um, that's what I ride on my uh, transition spur. Um, we have racers uh, using it on the EWS circuit. Leaf Rogers has had quite a bit of success uh, with those rims uh, last year. And I think you'll have more this year. Um, and so to give you an idea, um, you're basically looking at like, I think the, the inner width is 30 mil on the 37s, so the 37 uh, in the TR 37 refers to the outer width. So that's kind of our all round best do it, do it, do it all rim. You have some XE and even gravel options too, right? Like are those, are those catching on? Yeah, quite a bit. Like we definitely sell more TR 37s than any other rim, but um, the rest of our catalog sells through really strong, really strongly as well. So on the XC side, we we originally had what's called a TR 32, um, and we kind of refer to that as our you know a BC rated XC wheel set. When we went to design the XC rim, uh, it was really important. You know, really the way that we looked at it was what would we want to race the BC VR? I'm not sure. Are you guys familiar with the the BC bike race? Yep, totally. Yeah, so like Trevor's obviously he he's done it several times. Um, and so when we're designing an XC rim, we're designing it for Pacific Northwest conditions. So it, it's certainly lightweight. Um, you know, I think the, front, the all of our rims are front rear specific. So the thirty two is three hundred and sixty grams for the front, three ninety for the for the rear. Um, so it might not be the absolute lightest rim around, but really we're considering these rims to be um, something you could take on some pretty burly terrain and, and still do a really, really nice job of supporting the rider. So the TR32 was the initial XD rim that we um, 
that we started with. Um, that's going to fit a 2.2 to 2.5 inch tire really nicely. Um, I think the inner width is 27 on the front and then 26 on the back. And then after selling that through for the last couple of years, we also designed a TR35, which is essentially the exact same layup, um, but it's, it's three millimeters wider just because with the, uh, with, you know, with the introduction of, of kind of more quote unquote down country bikes, people wanted to go wider, even on XC rigs. And we, we felt, we, we heard that from our customers and, and delivered the TR35. Okay. Um, Jason, you want to go into the questions you had about production? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, kind of going back and talking about the rims being produced overseas and they come to you guys and they're hand built to order in Canada. I'm just kind of curious on, I think there's a pretty big disconnect for a lot of riders knowing that parts of their bikes are made overseas, but actually not knowing maybe what that looks like for a North American brand to go do that. Like, can you maybe just touch on, you know, how do you guys take, um, you know, a wheel like your TR37 when you're developing it and go to your factories and, and have that become a product? Yeah, it, that is a fantastic question. And it's actually something that there's a, you know, I mean, I said to my staff when we did that G2, like we just released our, our generation two noble rims, which is, mm -hmm. which is really just a, um, a really uh, large refresh, um, of our of our product um it just really is a, a bunch of significant improvements that we've made to the manufacturing process but when we went to launch that you know obviously we had media partners yourselves pink bike and you know just we, we, we launched on instagram and um there's always a lot that i told my staff like i don't look at the comments section i have <laughs> i've always I, my background's in the music industry i've learned like you just don't you don't look in those spaces it's always going to drag you down um <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, when we when we when we launched that, uh, I did look at the comments section, and uh, of course, noticed that, uh, that that's that's a frequent topic uh, of conversation amongst consumers, and so it's really important to talk talk about. Um, and I'm definitely happy to talk about it. So, cool. um, I would say that we, so I, I don't want to get into a crazy amount of detail, but I would say that within the Noble brand, we have. Um, an extreme um we, ha we have we have we have a lot of control over the manufacturing uh design um and uh basically the entire manufacturing process of our of our of our product the reason we have that amount of control um is because in 2015 trevor and his business partner uh went to china uh two to three times and really looked at dozens of factories um before before landing on our current partner um so it's it's something we take very seriously um obviously it's it's critical that not only the product that we're receiving to to build is of the best um quality but also just that we're satisfied with the factory conditions and that we're working with people that share our values um and so that was something that was really important to them um, and so what I can say about, you know, how we produce the Noble Rims is that, you know, the Noble Rims use exclusive molds and layups. So, um, you know, factories uh, often are, you know, producing rims for dozens or hundreds of other clients. Um, and the, the Noble Rims in particular use exclusive molds and, and layups in all of their production. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of the short answer. The, the larger answer is... You know, behind the Noble brand, there's a much larger entity, um, of which you know we we you know we have some input as well. So, 
what that basically means that it is that you know behind the noble brand there's there's an organization that that produces um tens of thousands of rooms for dozens of different brands and truly noble it was in some ways kind of created to be the boutique brand that pushes the factory's capability uh as far as material choice design and, and focus is concerned so really noble for us is the best of the best um it's trevor creating the product that he wants to ride that he feels is the pinnacle um of of, of rim technology at the time of the current time interesting yeah that's i think uh i know it's funny when you do click on comments especially when it comes to carbon products people's short-sightedness that it's just a rim coming out of a mold with the logo slapped on it but it's good i think it's every time you can have somebody who knows explain it. It's good for people to hear it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, so yeah, because I mean, if you were to, I mean, another way, there are a lot of companies for sure that are going out and they're just, you know, you can go online, you try to find uh, some place that produces rims. They have a catalog of rims, um, and then you can select that rim, and you can have that rim branded, right? Um, and so I think that that certainly is a way that that some companies do business. Um, and uh, you know, on the on the noble side of things, it's uh, you know we're we're behind the scenes part of the process, and in, in not not necessarily on the noble side putting those those uh, those OEM brands uh, branded rooms together, but mm-hmm. we we do have a lot of uh, oversight in the factory, and, and really um, the noble brand in, in a lot of ways was just created to push uh, the technology forward as, as much as possible. So it truly is we feel the best of the best. What about the uh, you guys' sin wave shape and or uh, is it sine wave or sin wave? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's, it's sine wave for sure. I'm not sure if you've uh, seen like the uh, it's like a, it's like an audio signal, like a, a sine wave is kind of like a wavy audio signal, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, I was gonna say I think for anybody who's looked at your guys' newest products and wheels, it's a very defining characteristic. You want to go into just what the whole goal is behind that design. Yeah, absolutely. I could definitely talk about that. Um, it's funny. So you're in 2020 when the sine wave rims were initially released. That was actually a really disruptive shape. Um, you're, I've noticed over the last couple of years, you're actually starting to see more angular rim types. Um, but when when we first put that out in 2020, it was actually most rims were still conventionally shaped. They still kind of had that that U or kind of V conventional shape. So. I don't think we were the first, but it was it was kind of one of the first products that looked like that, which was super cool. The reason why we've chosen to go with the sine wave shape is, as I mentioned earlier, you know, carbon rims, if they're over-constructed, if they're super deep, um, they tend to just completely deaden the ride feel. And, and to us, that, that defeats the purpose of, of what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. You can make a carbon rim super, super strong. All you do is you make it really, really deep. Maybe you make it a little bit wider. Um, but you're kind of left with this product that's that's not fun to ride. You don't feel the trail really well, um, and it's it's probably uncomfortable and, and probably doesn't handle very well. So, with the sine wave shape, the whole point is that we're trying to keep the sidewalls of the rim as shallow as possible, hmm. while maintaining as much strength as we possibly can, so that the rim can kind of handle um, these super technical and aggressive ride um, applications that we're seeing nowadays. Right, so. Um, that's, that's the whole goal there. If we can keep the sidewalls, uh, if we can keep the sidewall shallow, it basically means the brim is able to flex 
quite a bit through chunky terrain while remaining stiff side to side. So when you're pushing through a corner, through a berm, um, when you're trying to hold a line, you still kind of get that precise nature of the rim, but you are you are uh, also getting a nice, comfortable, and pleasant ride feel as well. Yeah, the uh, everyone's favorite word with wheels, the compliance of wheels, but there is a lot of truth in that. And I think, uh, you know, if people have opportunities to ride various wheels, you can tell quite a difference, um, like what you're speaking about between the different designs and ways wheels are created. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's funny, like compliance is a word that you're right. You hear tossed around all the time. You also Mm -hmm. hear the word stiffness tossed around all the time. And I think consumers are often left wondering, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. It's important to think about the wheel as an entire system, right? Um, People often ask for, Hey, I want the strongest wheel. And so I think in general, when you come to the table, you're thinking, Hey, strongest. So, that means kind of the thickest, biggest rim. Uh, it means, you know, the, the thickest gauge spoke, like a, like a race spoke, um, you know, and everything's got to be kind of nice and tight. But, you know, the, the problem with approaching it in that way is that if you're left with a wheel that's built like that, it becomes brittle because there's no room for it to flex, right? So where the compliance piece comes in is just the, the, the wheel's ability to flex, which inherently will feel more comfortable for the rider and actually lead to, to less failures of the rim itself so it's just kind of finding that that balance um obviously you can make the rim stronger if you make the rim stronger you run the risk of uh deadening the ride feel and just kind of having a product that sucks to ride so mm-hmm. how do you walk that line how do you make sure that you hit the mark given that riders are kind of riding in a bunch of different ways i mean there's there's riders that are you know ride dh bikes on xc trails you know so yeah how do you how do you strike that perfect balance that's going to work really really well for most riders and I, I think we've done that um with with the with with the sine wave product i want to know more about you know the g2 development and how that's different yeah. from the first um kind of line of hubs but yeah since we're on it you guys offer beer it's beard right not bird <laughs> It's birds, folks. That's a B-E-R-D, yeah, bird. Bird, okay. And can you just kind of tell us about those? Because they're basically like a cloth spoke to some degree, right? Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I'll say is I don't work for bird, <laughs> although <laughs> I do spend I do spend a ton of time, uh, you know, talking about bird spokes, um, selling bird spokes, explaining bird spokes to people at our trade shows. You know, we go to Crankworks, <laughs> we go to Sea Otter, whatever. Uh, the first thing we do is we hang a beautiful noble wheel laced up uh, with bird spokes because, you know, people want to come over. They want to feel it. They want to touch it. It's Heck exciting. Yeah. Um, if you're like me, the first time you see it, you're like, there's no way. This works. Like, what What are we talking about here? Like, there's just no way that this works, right? Uh, but I, I'm happy to report that not only does it work, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the, the product really, really works. I think the best use case for bird spokes um, is riders on gravel bikes or short travel mountain bikes. Now we've built birds, uh, bird wheels for everything from road wheels all the way up like down, like we've built downhill wheels with bird spokes as well. But bird spokes truly just in that, that compliance I'm talking about is kind of taken to the next level with bird spokes. So similar to carbon, where people used to go to carbon for the weight, bird spokes are going to shape a crazy amount of weight off your wheel set versus a conventional steel spoke. Like there's just, I mean, it's fabric versus steel. So there's, there's no question about that, but I have bird spokes on my spur. Um, and, uh, just the ride quality is absolutely fantastic just because the rim is able to flex so much more, um, with the, with the fabric spokes versus, uh, versus the steel ones. So we really like them. 
Um, the challenging thing for us and for other uh, potential wheel builders is, is that they are very different to build. Initially, a lot of spoke, uh, sorry, a lot of hub preparation was required because you're building with these spokes that don't have conventional, you know, they're not conventional J-Bender straight pull spokes, right? They're just pieces of fabric. So what that means is that traditionally uh, the hub had to be prepared and that was prepared with kind of a special proprietary drilling bit and polishing set. So that would take some time. Um, but then the very active tensioning the wheel as well um, is more challenging too. Um, initially, it actually took us, you know, three to four full days to build one bird wheel set. Because oh. what you have to do is you had to lace it. Um, and of course, you have to use spoke lengths that are, that are very, very short because naturally the fiber stretches out and kind of beds in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so you'd lace it up, you'd bring it up to full tension, and then we let that wheel set sit for 24 hours. Then the next day, you hit it again, bring it up to full tension. So you kind of go through these um, these 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 tension, uh, this series of, of, of tensioning over a few days. And I, you know, after you kind of have the fourth or fifth one, you tree the wheel, and it's 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 good to go. Um, so you know that you know for our business created um, a number of challenges. And as you can imagine, you know, imagine you're sitting in a warehouse, you have you know 50 wheel sets all being built by hand. But now you have 10 of those are bird wheel sets and they're kind of different stages of the tensioning process, right? So um, that was a really interesting uh, problem for us to solve. But I'm, I'm also happy to report that that bird has uh, solved the problem themselves in some sense with, with some proprietary tools that we've been able to purchase from them that actually allow us to stress relieve the wheel far more quickly than we have to have in the past. Um, hmm. So we're at the point now where we can basically build and ship a bird wheel set uh, same day within about three hours. Oh wow! Whoa, that's crazy. From three days to same day. Yeah, yeah. I, I should, I should, I should clarify too. Like, I don't mean we don't have a guy building the wheel for seventy-two hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, for sure. It's not like it's not like someone's just kind of sitting at the you know, chain to their to their <laughs> wheel desk. Like you gotta keep putting tension on those spokes. Um, but yeah, it was a process, right? And so you know, there's there's some ways now that we can stress stress relieve the spokes a lot more easily. Um, and for us, that's solved a massive problem because we started, I would say, you know, Bird would know for sure, but I would say probably besides Bird, we've built more Bird wheels than, than probably anyone else. Like we build a lot of them. We've invested really, really heavily in product because we, because we believe in it so fully. Um, and uh, it, uh, it was a really, really nice, um, it's really nice to be able to solve that problem and to be able to build them more quickly because uh it's uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic for the right UK use case and the right uh, and the right riders, um, because it, due to the nature of the fact that it's uh, it, it's so much more comfortable to ride, I think gravel riders, XD riders are just the perfect bike for those to go on. Yeah. Okay. Is I mean, if I understand it right, will okay. Let's say you have a wheel laced up, and let's say you smash into a parking block for fun, and that lets your rim deform a little bit you know, against the parking block, will the spoke actually kind of slacken up a little bit versus like, you know, a metal one? Yeah. And honestly, even metal ones do too. Like if you were to yeah. see, there's some photos and video I could show you. If you saw, like you could, say you took a TR-37 and I filmed you super slow motion, ripping down a chunky section of trail, you'd be like, you'd be absolutely blown away by how much your wheel is flexing up and down. You can actually see it with your eyes, how much it's flexing, even with steel spokes. So that same uh, th that same thing happens with bird spokes, uh, but probably a little bit more so. 
Um, and so what's happening is naturally the spokes are flexing a little bit, others are stretching a little bit, and that whole wheel system is is basically um, flexing together um, to uh, to keep moving forward. Like it's a little more elastic than like a metal setup would be, basically. That, that's that's exactly right. You're thinking about it in exactly the right way. Now it's not. Um, I also don't want to give you the impression. Yeah, this <laughs> I, we're talking okay. like fractions of a millimeter of movement or whatever, but yeah. Exactly. And I think that if, if listeners are curious to see it on noblewheels.com, we have a ton of bird resources. Um, we have a lot of videos about bird. If you want to build your own bird wheel set, we actually have a how to build your own bird wheel set on noblewheels.com. And there's a lot of good photos and a lot of good videos. Um, the way that the picture I like to paint is if you were to grab the spokes and you didn't know they were fabric, they we're not talking about string here like this stuff feels like a proper spoke like it is made out of fabric but the tension is is very very strong so when we're talking about flexing this is not something you're seeing at speed to the naked eye kind of thing um right. but just it's something that kind of happens um that is noticeable when you're riding right yeah huh interesting okay along Along those lines of, you know, strength, compliance, flat protection, like how do those get things balanced? And I mean, does that kind of segue into what you've done with the G2 rims? Was it just refining what you'd originally done to put it into the G2 format? Yeah, that, that that's, you, you, hit the, you hit the nail on the head there for sure. The, the G2 rim, we really look like, we really look at it's just a, a massive refinement to the lineup and you know, behind the scenes, all companies that are involved in manufacturing are keeping a close eye on warranty numbers. They're keeping a close eye on wheel performance. Um, you know, if if our warranty numbers or really if, if any wheel manufacturers' warranty numbers were um, drastically out of whack or if there's a problem in manufacturing, um, we just wouldn't be able to keep the doors open. Like the product margin on this, on this stuff is not huge. Um, so we take our warranties and our wheel performance very, very seriously. So... Um, behind the scenes, you know, we, as all other manufacturers do, are always making small incremental changes. Sometimes that means we notice that there's a certain trend. We go, okay, well, how can we fix this thing? We talk about it. Maybe we make a small change. And most of the time, I would say like probably 95% of the time, consumers aren't even notified. Like bike frame layups are changed all the time and consumers aren't even notified that they change. It's just a small improvement. It's still the same product. Um, with the Generation 2 rims, you know, really... Um, with with the G two rims, it was it was there was probably enough of those improvements that it became a significant improvement. Does that does that make sense? Like, yeah, for was, sure. The, we, we were tracking the data. Uh, we were really happy with how the product was performing, but we all we always are also pursuing you know um, better and better results. Of course, right? So um, we made three very very significant changes to the to, to the rims. Um, and, uh, when taken all together, we felt like it was worthwhile to actually, you know, kind of call this a, a, a product refresh, uh, which is the G2 rims. And obviously we have the laser etching, uh, as opposed to the water slide graphics that, uh, that we use in the past as well. Right. So, um, that, that kind of was our thought process with it. Um, is it, I, I'm not sure if you guys feel like it's valuable to kind of talk through the, the specific changes that we made to the rims, but I'm certainly happy to do that if you, if you feel like we should. Yeah. I'd like yeah, to hear about totally. it. Totally. Yeah, for sure. So um, we th these changes are kind of across the entire lineup, uh, but a lot of them were necessitated by the TR37s. As I as I said before, the TR37 is probably the most likely rim that we offer to be abused. 
because it's the rim that people are like, oh, I'm going to put these on my my truck top fuel, except for I, like, I ride Whistler with that bike three times a year or whatever. And they like, they ride Schleyer, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, you know, with the TR37, it's, it's kind of a polarizing rim because it has to do everything. It has to do it well. Um, I know people that race XD on the TR37s. And then, as I said, um, but at one point we had a, a UCI ticket, DH World Cup team, one of the commensal teams was riding the 37s. Um, so it's really kind of seen the most varied use, which made it an excellent tool to talk about performance and how things are, are handling as far as durability is concerned. Um, and I would say, you know, through the kind of the G1 version, the TR-37 uh, was very, very successful. But I think overall, as we noticed, people were tending to put it on larger bikes. We wanted to make some improvements there as far as the durability and strength was concerned. So we made three, uh, three pretty significant improvements um, that I think overall together led to a 40% boost in impact resistance on average, which is uh, really, really consequential and something we're very, very happy with. So the first thing that we did is we made some changes um, to the layup schedule. We completely redesigned the layup schedule. Our asymmetrical rims, um, do you guys know what, I'm sure you know what asymmetrical means, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So for those that don't know, asymmetrical basically just means that our rims are are, are different shapes slightly from, from side to side. Um, so basically, we made some pretty significant changes to to the layup schedule. We, we just redesigned it from the ground up. Um, and we also changed some of the, uh, we changed not only, we added new prepreg, so we're using new prepreg material. Um, and we also changed the fiber orientation on the nipple bed to work better with the new prepreg that we were using. So the net result of this is that um, the rim is able to better distribute impact energy through the sidewalls of the rim and effectively dissipate it into the nipple bed. Um, so when it takes a hit, it's actually able to dissipate that energy more evenly, which is which is critical. Um, when you get rims breaking, it's usually because there's a spoke tension that's incorrect or the layup is not allowing the, uh, the impact to reverberate through the rim. And so... The force is centralized, which is which is why you can get the the, the ring to break. D does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, so that's probably the first thing we did. That's the first thing we did, which is most notable. We changed the prepreg, and we also changed the fiber orientation of the nipple bed. The second thing we did, um, which we which we did notice was uh, something that we really wanted to improve is we wanted to improve our rim's ability to take a hit on one side of the rim of feed, but but not the other. So oftentimes when you're riding, you have a square edged hit. Um, onto a rock, and uh, if, if then we were noticing that our rims, if both beads hit at the same time, they were incredibly strong. Um, however, when one say you're say you're kind of say you're kind of like cruising past a rock, or you you hit something with one side of the bead but not the other, mm -hmm. we really wanted to improve the rim's ability to take a hit on one side but not the other. So what we did is we introduced a special new material into the um, into what I call the rim lips, which is just kind of like the area above the bead. So we introduced uh, a, new, a new material there, which really heightened flexibility in that area. And again, that 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 was really just done to make sure that the rim could handle those single-sided hits more effectively than before. Hmm. Um, the, the third thing that we changed is uh, um, there's like this little area, I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to talk about it. Directly below, um, there's some good diagrams on nowheels.com, but directly below the, the bead seat, um, we made some changes inside the rib cavity as well. Um, this area is very, very important 
uh, as far as distributing those impact forces through the drop channel. Um, and it's also an area that when you're going through the molding process and the curing process, it was really prone to material creep. So what that means is the material is placed within the mold, but for whatever reason, things move around during the curing process. And that can create tiny little voids in the carbon, which obviously can impact performance and lead to manufacturing issues and kind of cause early failure. So what we did there is a little tough to explain, but um, there's essentially a new two-step process to how we manufacture that portion of the of the layup, which which makes it so that uh, material creep actually isn't isn't nearly as much of an issue, um, and the, the process is far more easily repeatable and actually faster for the technicians as well. Um, and that ended up uh, being a massive decade too. So those are kind of the three main structural changes that we made to to all of the noble rims, which led to the forty percent uh, increase in impact resistance. Um, but we also thought it was a good opportunity to change our graphics. Um, graphics have traditionally been a massive part of Noble, as you guys probably know, like you can customize your graphics. We offer American flag vinyl or, you know, plaid <laughs> vinyl. Uh, most people tend to just try to color maps their bike, but, you know, whatever you want, we can pretty much do it. Um, underneath the, uh, the premium vinyl that we use for the, for the decaling, though, we were using a water slide graphic. Um, which was very, uh, it, it was very labor intensive, uh, and also led to, I, I would say like, it's always tough to talk about, you know, environmental benefits when you're talking about carbon, but there was a lot of waste when it came to the actual water slide graphics that we were using and that other brands continue to use. Um, it just wasn't a very straightforward process and, and, and led to a lot of waste. Um, and so we looked at other ways we could, um, refine the graphics um to give customers something that was you know just as pleasing aesthetically um but maybe it was a little bit uh more straightforward for our manufacturing team and um it also didn't cause as much waste so what we ended up with was uh was actually going with was laser etching so graphics uh created by lasers um and it's 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 relatively straightforward it's it's kind of exactly what it sounds like it's just a focused beam of light that that alters the rim the rim's finish uh, obviously, during the process, you have to be careful that you're not compromising the, the rim structural integrity. Um, mm -hmm. But the result is a really sleek, almost kind of like metallic graphic um, that I think is probably a lot more understated than our previous designs. Um, so yeah, uh, that in conjunction with the three structural changes make up the make up the new G2 lineup. That sounds like a lot of work went into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't. I think it's important to note too that we, um, you know, not this, the G2 lineup wasn't all done overnight. Um, there were a lot of those changes that were made incrementally, uh, which basically means that some customers that ordered rims even last summer, they may have received G2 rims, but maybe the graphics weren't updated, or maybe they received rims where two of the three improvements have been made, but not, not the last one for whatever reason. So, we have slowly been rolling these things out. It's like literally as soon as we found out we could make things better, we started, we implemented the change. And so the announcement, uh, the announcement uh, a couple weeks ago was really just, uh, hey, we, this, we've officially rolled out all the changes. We've changed the graphics. Let's move forward with this new G2 product. Um, and people, uh, if people are, um, our customer service team picks up the phone. We answer emails. If any customer, if you have an order pending or have a question about your order, we always encourage people call in. Um, we can talk about what you currently have, and we're happy to answer those questions if people have concerns. 
Okay. Sweet. Cool. On the topic of uh, customer service, I was cruising through your site. You guys offer 15 minute like video calls for, for service. Yeah, that's right. Um, we, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when you're, you buy something from a company, maybe it's a bike company, maybe it's like some other outdoor company. Do you find that the experience you have is just like wildly varied depending on who you contact for like a warranty or like a question or whatever? No, for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's gnarly. Like I, I'm not going to name any names, but I've like, even in the last couple of weeks, I've sent probably two or three emails to different companies for, you know, maybe a staff pro account or uh, a query about like one is a warranty and then another one's like a query about a certain product line. And like one of the companies got back to me in like three hours. And then I still haven't heard back from the other two. And that was like, it was a long, long time ago. Um, it is critical for us. Like, a good customer service and sales support has always been a cornerstone of the company. Um, and that's something we've doubled down on over the last couple of years. So not only can you send us an email, um, we have a chat on our website. Um, you can call us and pick up the phone um, or you leave a voicemail. Somebody will call you back. If you want to set up, as you said, a video call, there's a form on the website where you can type in your information. A lot of people want a great wheel set. They want to match their bike but they don't know exactly what they want. So um, it's great for us to be able to connect with customers on a video call or on a phone call, talk through the options um, and really help people understand what they're looking for. Because a lot of times, as I said, people might know they want to upgrade, but they don't exactly know what they want to upgrade to. So we take the customer service really, really seriously. Um, and uh, given how, um, I think things would be a lot more straightforward if we had two wheel sets, but given the fact that we have kind of this infinite uh, iterations of what you can build with a noble custom wheel. It's important for us to be able to talk about that in person with customers. Yeah. yeah. Do cool. people, uh, actually take advantage of the being able to do a video call just out of curiosity? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah, for sure. I've had some, uh, I've had, uh, even like I'll even hop on there sometimes. So I, I love connecting with customers. Um, and I've had just some fantastic, it, it's funny, like the, the people you think, I mean, of course, there's there's the people you think that are going to buy a two thousand dollar wheel set. Um, of course, there's those serious performance oriented people that are racing, um, athletes, um, people that are super wealthy. There, there's 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 all those people that, that that are purchasing those products. But I've had just some fantastic conversations with people um, upgrading um, to a, a premium wheel set that uh, just just wouldn't really expect. And I think that the really cool thing that I've noticed is that people tend to look at our wheels as as an investment, mm -hmm. um, not only in like oh I can sell the bike for more later, but more so like I'm not going to have to think about my wheels anymore. A lot of people that buy our products are just tired of like having to retension their spokes. Or like rebend, you know, their alloy rim back into shape. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, they they really tend to look at it as like, wow, if I buy this, I'm not going to have to think about my wheels, and they're going to look sick, and they're just going to work. And uh, to me, that that's what I find the the most uplifting about kind of having those conversations. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. You know, you kind of hit on just being conscious of environmental impact a little bit with the with the decals and stuff. But I saw that you have like a no plastic in your shipping procedure, was that difficult to achieve? And is it more expensive? Yeah, for sure. It, it has been. And um, I think it's kind of okay for us in composite manufacturing to talk about environmental stuff and impacts. I, I think we kind of like, we should, are we going to be making carbon rims in their current, uh, like in the, in the current 
capacity that, that we do in 10 years? Like, I don't really know. Um, so t we, we take that stuff seriously. We've, we've done what we can with our current procedures. And I, I can also share, again, without getting into too much detail, one of our biggest motivations. Oh, sorry, guys. It's got a phone call there. <laughs> okay. uh, our, did you hear Did you hear the ringtone go through? Just a little bit, yeah. Barely. <laughs> Just a little bit. Okay, fantastic. Well, it was my wife, so hopefully she's okay. Um, but uh, one of our main motivations with the uh, with the G two release was actually to move more toward um, a recyclable carbon product. Carbon recycling exists. Um, it is something you can do now, um, but unfortunately, with this with this current update, we were not quite able to get to where we needed to to make the product recycling or recyclable rather. Mm -hmm. um, internally, that was a big disappointment for us. Um, that was, uh, you know, I, I care a lot less about the, you know, kind of the storytelling side of it and, and more about, um, the fact that, uh, I just would, you know, it all would feel better uh, if that, if that were the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something we're going to continue to fight toward. Uh, it's important to us. And, and I think as we develop our, our next product and take our next steps forward, that's something that's going to be a serious consideration for us. Nice. Does it just have to do with the resin mostly right now? Yeah. I mean, to, to be honest, actually when it has to do with, it's fiberglass. Um, a lot of the current carbon. So it's actually amazing what they're doing with carbon recycling these days. Like these guys, these companies recycle carbon. They've been putting it into like, I'm not sure if you've heard this, but they're, they've been putting it into like these crazy applications, like heating, um, heating up like uh, airplane, like airport runways um, and keeping um, highways. Like there, there's like this, they're able to actually warm these carbon enhanced asphalts to, so that they don't ice over. So there's, there's a lot of really cool applications <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, with the current recycling process, if there's any element of fiberglass, like even like a milligram, it basically voids the entire the entire batch. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's what that's what's keeping most carbon manufacturers back is fiberglass is still a, a major component, um, even though a very small one, it's just a, a component um, in, in some of the manufacturing processes. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And as far as like the packaging when you ship wheels out, like. To get rid of plastic there was was that not that difficult i think that there's there's easy there's there's solutions you can find if you don't want to use plastic you can find an alternative now that's that's biodegradable or whatever right so um i wouldn't say that it was extremely difficult probably a little more expensive um but i, I don't think it was it, it was absolutely um it was it was extremely difficult to, to find the solution the nice thing about where we are currently is um there are lots of other options besides plastic to use if you, if you know where to look nice what question do you hear most often from customers or potential customers? Because I, I noticed the, the FAQ on your site's pretty darn detailed and pretty deep, especially the the bird thing. But what do you get more most often with you know someone coming to you who's new? I think that um, it really depends on, on where you are. Um, if you're at a trade show, say you're at Sea Otter Crankworks, and someone um, comes by the tent. They're probably going to actually lead with one of the first questions you guys asked, which is why should I buy carbon uh, <laughs> over alloy? You know, why should I? Why should I invest? You know, what should I spend the money? That, that's a really, really common question, and um, that's certainly one that's 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 easy for us to answer as far as the you know ride quality, weight's concerned, and and, and durability. Um, if you were to we 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 have uh, on Bank for Island, we've actually recently moved into this beautiful showroom in a heritage building uh, right in downtown Cumberland. Um, and so when people come in there, 
we have obviously like dozens of custom wheel sets built up. We have like, all these hubs up because we call it the rainbow wall. There's basically like, you can see it on our Instagram, but there's like this wall of like hundreds of colorful hubs from all these different brands. So when people come in there, they're usually armed. Like they're usually like, they know what they want and they like want to put their hands on it before they, uh, before they make a purchase. Like uh, there's people that just, they're, they're there for hours, just like looking at stuff and everyone does like the free hub spin to, you know, to hear the different, uh, hear the different driver sounds and that sort of thing. <laughs> but typically in our retail setting, uh, the customer that's coming in there is going to be a lot more focused. Um, and they're going to ask specific questions about hub types. They want to talk about engagement. Uh, they want to talk about, you know, what's what's the most durable or the most bomb-proof hub or what what has the, the best ceiling if they, if they arrive in a lot of wet weather, that sort of thing. So those types of customers for sure are going to be uh, probably a bit more armed with knowledge um, about the brand and about what they're looking for versus someone that you'd see at a trade show. Um, online, a really common question is we, we actually have like a, a wheel set recommendation uh, form on the website where you list your height, your weight, uh, you know, what kind of bike you have, what kind of trails you want to ride. Um, and then, you know, just, Hey, what, what should I get? And then we make a recommendation. So I would say online, that's probably the most common one. Jason, do you have anything else? If not figure we can, uh, can wrap on up. I've got one closer. Yeah. I got one on just front and rear specific rims. That's become a lot more popular from other brands more recently as well. And, and what's kind of your guys's thought behind that and goal. Yeah, I mean, again, the front rear specific, when we did that in 2020, I don't know how many other people were doing it, but for us, it's yeah. relatively straightforward. Typically, you want um, a wider contact patch on the front, right? Say you're riding a trail bike. I run a 2.6 in the front, 2.4 in the back on both my bikes. Um, so the front rim is always slightly wider, but almost more important than that, um, the rear rim is reinforced. It's heavier um, because obviously the rear rim is going to take a lot more abuse. That's the one that's casing. That's the one that typically you would see fail or have issues because um, it's it's the one kind of taking the, the majority of the rider weight and, and doing a lot of the work as far as that's concerned. So, um, yeah, really, I think front rear specific rims are, are an absolute no-brainer. Um, it's not cheap to do front rear specific rims, but um, it makes a lot of sense if you're uh, making a premium product. Um, and really, it's just about tire width on the front and uh, just a reinforced um, rim in the rear for the more aggressive use. Sweet. Right on. Nice. Well, the wood chipper across the street just turned on i don't know if you could hear it so that's kind of a good time oh yeah fantastic yeah yeah so i've come to i've come to uh british columbia sampled sea to sky a little bit i have my all mountain bike and i'm coming over to the island to cumberland give me your uh must hit trail recommendation for sure can you tell me so my first my first question when people ask me that is i say what is your shred level like what do you what do you what do you enjoy riding? Give me Whistler Black, like original sin kind of stuff, or or less. Okay, perfect. So what I would do is I'd start I'd go to the very top of our network. We have a fantastic climbing trail here called Sobo Nobichi that uh, the local trail organization put in. Um, it's like this. It's almost like it's smooth double track. It's like half half the width of a line, but just smooth berms pretty much all the way up that you climb to the top of the uh, the network. And I would do a black trail called Race Rocks. Uh, really techie, um, some tough, punchy climbs in it, but like also some really fun, kind of janky, weird descents, off-camber stuff. I rode it in the wet last weekend, and it was very, very scary. <laughs> <laughs> I would do race rocks. Uh, I would do that into a trail called By Felicia, um, which has these beautiful views of the valley and actually has one of the largest old-growth trees in the network, uh, like right next to it, which is cool. 
uh, I would do a trail called Blockhead, which is uh, definitely a local favorite. Um, I would say it's more of a dark blue than a black, but it's it's rated black. It's got some nice rock rolls and just probably one of the most fun trails in the network. Um, and then from there, I would go do a trail called Bucket of Blood. It's got some drops, jumps, super fast, super flowy. And then depending on your uh, your appetite at that point, if you wanted more jumps, I would do a trail called Broadway. Uh, and if you wanted less jumps and more tech, I would do Off Broadway, which is rock rolls and just some really janky tech at the bottom. All black trails, all fun. Definitely one of my, my bigger laps. Dude, that yeah, sounds yeah. pretty good right about now. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you guys located? I'm outside of Boise, Idaho. So okay. it's ni- it's nice here, but you know the terrain. Unless you drive a little bit, it's not super steep or challenging. So, yeah, we had we had a blast at Crankworks this winter or this year with uh with the rain and getting to ride in the wet and stuff. So, yeah, what what you're talking about sounds pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the, it's funny. Like when you're when you're living here, you kind of have to learn how to. I at least me, I'm, I'm not a great rider. I've only been riding for about six years, um, but I find I have to like learn how to ride differently twice a year as soon as this when when it gets dry you're like i'm the best rider in the world i should be riding (laughs) i should be racing world cups i'm so fast my cornering is unbelievable uh and then like as soon as october rolls around it starts to rain and those roots like the roots here man like if you just look at them the wrong way you're on your ass sometimes (laughs) and uh while that can be fun it also can be incredibly scary but uh it's certainly I think you just start going at different speed through the winter, which is uh, which is nice. It, it leads to the uh, to the false confidence in the summer. So it's it's the, it's the cycle of it's the circle of uh, cycling life here in Cumberland. <laughs> awesome, I love it. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks so much for the time. I feel like I've I've learned a lot about Noble, and it sounds like what you're doing is is pretty exciting. So really appreciate the the time, and yeah, thanks for being on. Yeah, it was a blast, guys. Thank you very much for for having me and. Uh, we uh, we'd love to show you around if you're around on island. So uh, if you're at Crankworks, we're going to be at Sea Otter this year. Please come say hello. I'd love to meet you and uh, show you around uh, the network if you ever get the chance. That'd be great. Yeah, it sounds like a plan for sure. <laughs>